Well, find Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look tonight at the subject matter, the blessing of brokenness. As we look at the seven churches of Revelation, I mentioned last week a wonderful little resource on these seven churches. John R.W. Stopped, What Christ Thinks of the Church. That is an outstanding little book. You see how small it is. It's even a book, I guess, that men would read. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, just, just a tremendous book. I would highly encourage you to order that and get that and put it in your library. Uh, let's read, picking up in verse 8. And notice who's addressing the churches. It's the risen Christ. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These words are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has the ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, as you sit here tonight, you don't realize it, but as a Christian, you have somewhat of a debt to a, to a man by the name of uh, Polycarp. You ever heard of Polycarp? He was a bishop of the church martyred in A.D. That's right. 158. That's right. He was discipled by the Apostle John. John, of course, who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And uh, what's so significant about the life of Polycarp as far as timing is he was sort of a bridge person between the, the apostles as they died off and then the years following that, the early church. He was a, a leader right after the apostles. And so he was a man who literally stood in the gap in a very difficult time in church history when all kinds of heretics were attacking the young church, the new church. Uh, he stood in the gap and was faithful. And uh, listen to the outcome of his life because you would think that being an aged man like he was, he would finish out his years with some degree of ease and comfort. But this was not the case. Uh, listen to the outcome. It said that in his old age, Polycarp was hunted by Roman officials like a wild animal during the Roman persecution of Christians. Finally, upon capturing him, his captors were so moved by his words of courage, his obvious character, his compassion, and his prayers that they begged him to pledge allegiance to Caesar instead of to Christ in order that he might spare his life. When Polycarp would not recant his Christian faith, they hauled him into the arena both Jews and Gentiles with unrestrainable anger and a loud voice called out, This is the teacher of impiety, the father of the Christians. 
the destroyer of Rome's gods, who teacheth many neither to sacrifice nor to worship the gods. And then upon saying these things, they shouted for the proconsul to uh, let loose the lions on Polycarp. But the proconsul replied that it was not lawful for him to do so since the exhibition time of the wild beast was complete. And so then they began shouting, the crowd did with one voice, that Polycarp would be burned at the stake. Now, as he was brought into the arena, again, he was urged to turn his back on Christianity and embrace the gods of the Romans. And he responded by saying, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Again, the proconsul urged him to say, of Christians who would not worship Rome's gods. He was urged to say, away with the atheist. Polycarp instead looked at the angry idolaters and he motioned with his hands as he pointed towards them and said, yes, away with the atheist. Refusing to turn his back on Christ, he was burned at the stake. Now what's significant about that story is that Polycarp's martyrdom happened at Smyrna. He was the bishop of the church at Smyrna. This church we're looking at tonight. Now we saw last week, if you're going to think about true marks of, uh, of a church... A church that honors the Lord. If you're looking for marks of a true church, we saw last week it would be love of Christ. Our love of Christ is maintained. And we continue to fan, our, fan the flames of our love of Christ. Well, a second mark of a true church would be suffering for our faith, willing to suffer for Christ. And you know the two complement one another, don't they? Because we're willing to suffer for those whom we love. Folks, even in a so-called society of religious liberty as we live in today, the church will bring the wrath of, of an unrepentant world if it courageously and faithfully confronts the evils of our age. The church historian Kenneth Scott Latterette once said that the early Christians, one, one thing that was so outstanding about them is they were willing to outlive and outdie all of their contemporaries for the sake of their faith. So what we see tonight is even in the midst of suffering for Christ, we're called upon to remain faithful to the gospel. And as we're faithful, we can be assured that Christ stands with us. Now, we saw a pattern last week, we'll see in all of these letters, uh, the same pattern. And the first thing we see in these letters is the church. The church being described and something is said about each church. Now, we don't know exactly from the book of Acts when the gospel was first introduced at Smyrna. We, we just don't know that from the, from the New Testament itself. But 
After delivering the letter to Ephesus, the postman, as the postman would travel through Asia Minor, uh, the next city he would come to after Ephesus on a clockwise type journey would be Smyrna, about 35 miles away from Ephesus. Now, Smyrna may have been built as early as 3000 B.C., but around 600 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed by the Lydians, and it lay in ruin for more than three centuries. And then in 290 B.C., two successors of Alexander the Great had rebuilt the city. Now, scholars describe Smyrna as the most beautiful of all of the cities of Asia Minor. Uh, and there was a fierce rivalry and competition between Ephesus and Smyrna. Uh, the buildings in Smyrna, the Smyrna simply had carried with it the designation, the beautiful, the beautiful. Some called it the crown of Asia. It's claimed to be the birthplace of Homer, the poet Homer. <coughs> Now, Smyrna still exists today in Turkey. Does anybody know what city it is? Izzy or something like that. It is Mir. Mm-hmm. Izmir. Uh, Smyrna was one of Rome's greatest allies. The citizens of Smyrna were infatuated with uh, Rome. Uh, in 195 BC, they built a temple in which Rome was worshipped. A century later, one of Rome's armies was in the area. They were ill-clad, and they were faced with a harsh winter. And so when their situation was announced in the General Assembly of Smyrna, the citizens of the city even sent their very own clothes off their back to the Roman soldiers so the Roman soldiers could be warm going through winter. And so as you can imagine, Rome awarded Smyrna greatly for such undying loyalty. They chose Smyrna to be the site for the new temple that would be dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. When the city was destroyed by an earthquake in the late 2nd century, Marcus Aurelius had the city rebuilt. Now, as far as the church at Smyrna was concerned, they were a suffering church under heavy persecution. The very name Smyrna means murder. One of the solutions that would be used in embalming or anointing the dead, myrrh, would suggest death. It, uh, myrrh is a bitter oil. Uh, there was an industry at Smyrna that made myrrh, and this industry also made the citizens of Smyrna very wealthy. I think it's very appropriate and also symbolic in this case that such a persecuted church was in a place that stood for bitterness and death. It was probably the most persecuted of all of the New Testament churches. Now, evidently, the Christians at Smyrna had not lost their love for Christ as those at Ephesus had. And the Christians at Smyrna, they were, they were willing to suffer and even die for their faith. They were kind of like the apostles in the book of Acts. The apostles that rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. 
You know, it makes me wonder how much you and I today are willing to suffer for Christ. Are we willing to even inconvenience ourselves for the sake of Christ? How, where do we draw lines and say we'll go this far but no further? Do we draw such lines? How much are you willing to suffer or be inconvenienced for your faith? There may come a day that we, we have to really be tested in this issue. Some of you remember from years ago, we had a couple in the church. They're not in the church anymore. They've moved to the other side of Charlotte. Tom and Cynthia Knight. Tom went as a journeyman with the IMB to China. He was single, and after seminary, he went there for two years. While there, he met Cynthia, and they grew in love and married. Uh, Cynthia was a believer. Her parents were not believers. And after talking repeatedly to her mom, Tom and Cynthia were able to lead her mom to faith in Christ. Her dad was still hostile to Christianity. They eventually were able to lead him to Christ also. But when they led Cynthia's mom to faith in Christ, in China it's common to have all sorts of family idols and ancestral worship, just a plethora of gods and idols. And so in their den at her mom's home, much to the anger of Cynthia's dad, the mom set out all of her idols and all of her gods on the table in the family room. And as she was coming to Christ and professing her faith in Christ, she was smashing all of her family idols, her family gods. And, she, and her mom really had to take a stand for her Christian faith because, like I say, Cynthia's dad was so hostile to Christianity at the time. Uh, what kind of hostility would you be willing to undergo? Uh, secondly, I want you to see the commendation. Again, following the, the pattern we see here, the Lord first says something good about the church. Uh, in verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, what you'll notice about the church at Smyrna, it's, it's one of only two churches in these seven letters where there's nothing but unmixed praise. Usually there's commendation and then condemnation. But you'll notice of Smyrna, there is no condemnation. There's only commendation. There's only praise for the Christians at, at Smyrna. And notice how Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Now, the general citizens at Smyrna... They valued their city and their culture there and the Roman Empire. They put that first. They held their city in the highest esteem. But Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I'm the one that life is really all about. 
Faithfulness to him is what really counts. And he goes on to say that he died and came to life again. Now, this was a word of identification with those in Smyrna. Identification in two ways. First, the city had died. And the city had come back to life in a glorious way. Jesus is the one who died and was raised to life. But that's not the primary way to understand his identification with them. The Lord wants the Christians in Smyrna to know that he's the one He's the one who's died and, uh, and come back to life again. And so he knows what it's like to suffer the way they're suffering there at Smyrna. He knows what it's like to suffer to the point of losing your life. And so he identifies with them in, in that regard. He wants them to see that death is not the end. He rose again. And for Christians who go through hardships, for Christians who might suffer horribly for their faith, might even lose their lives for their faith, he wants them to see that hardships and even death does not have the final say. And so he identifies with them in their suffering. They could not say to the Lord, Lord, you don't know anything about our situation, how difficult life is. You just don't understand how difficult it is to be a Christian at Smyrna. Yes, he knows. Because he's our sympathetic high priest. And so he's identifying with them. And pointing out to them the hope that they can have even in the midst of of their hardship and suffering and trials. You know, Christians have a blessed hope even if we die. You know, this letter holds out great promise for believers who are going through difficult things in life. Because it it shows us that Jesus knows all about our circumstances and he's with us. We're We're not alone. We're not facing hardship in life alone. He knows and he cares (laughs) and he identifies with us. There's nothing we face that is too big for him. There's nothing we face that is beyond his control. Sometimes we might think that he's out of reach, but he's not out of reach. He's always there. And he says to them at Smyrna, I know all about your tribulation and your poverty, and he commends them for the way that they have held up. They've not turned their backs on the church there. They've not turned their backs on him. They've hung in there despite what a difficult place it was to be a believer. Now now notice, notice this commendation again. Three aspects to it. Threefold. He commends them for the way they have endured tribulation And the word for trials or tribulation here stands for for trials that are very harsh, very severe. It's a word that refers to pressure and was even used of executing people by crushing them to death. That's the kind of trials they were facing 
at Smyrna. And then once a year in the pagan temple, all of the citizens of the city would go into the pagan temple and they would burn incense to Caesar and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And the citizens at Smyrna didn't have any difficulty doing that. They, they had all their other idols, but they also worshipped the Romans, the Roman emperor, and all the Roman gods. But obviously the Christians at Smyrna were, were not willing to do that. Now, had they been willing to take Jesus and put Jesus alongside of all the other gods, and alongside of Caesar, you know, worship Jesus, but worship all the other gods who are no gods at all, but worship them. And, and you, can, you can have your Jesus, just make sure you worship everything else too. The Christians at Smyrna could have gotten by with it. They would have been just fine. But praise God, the Christians at Smyrna were like Daniel, Meshach, uh, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They wouldn't bend the knee. They wouldn't bow to other gods. They remain true to the Lord. And folks, it's the same for us today. If we're willing to embrace the world and Jesus at the same time, the world won't have any problems with us. If you're willing to go along with everybody else and while in Rome do what the Romans do, then you'll never encounter wrath at the hands of the world. The world could could not care less that you get up on a Sunday morning and come to church as long as you keep your Christian faith within the walls of this church. As long as you do that, the world's not going to have any problems with us. But if we take a stand for Christ and live a life of no compromise, then guess what? At some point, we're going to encounter the wrath of the world. And I hope we'll be willing to do that when it happens. He commends them also for the way they've endured poverty. There are two words in the Greek for poverty. One word for poverty is that you're, you're just getting by. You're scraping things together and making ends meet. You don't have anything extra, but you're just kind of barely making ends meet. But the other word, the word for poverty that's used here, means you've gone over the edge. You're destitute. You're in bad shape. Now, you might say, why were the Christians at Smyrna so destitute when their city had become so wealthy. Anybody have a guess about that? And there's a specific reason why. Does anybody know what that reason was at Smyrna? Well, the Buddha cult. It was a Caesar cult, and they refused to worship Caesar. They would not do it. Because the people there worship Caesar as God. True. There's something even more pointed economically at it that would have been a challenge. When they've been kicked out of the synagogue, if you get kicked out of the synagogue, 
every trade, every career path had its own patron god or idol. And you were expected to go into the houses or what with your fellow tradesmen in your trade and burn incense and pledge allegiance to the God over your trade. And if you didn't, you couldn't get work. You couldn't get work. Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> now, isn't it interesting today? Some people in modern times will go to church because they've been convinced that going to church will be good for business. And so in the past, you heard more about it, I guess, in previous decades. People would move to a town. They would find a church to go to. Because even if they weren't really a believer, they wanted to go to church because it would look good and it'd be good business contacts, right? Mm -hmm. Social network. Social network. Hmm. That's how some are today. But for the Christians at Smyrna, it was the opposite. Going to church could be bad for business. If you went to church and would not pledge allegiance to the idol over your trade, you couldn't get work. You were ostracized. And you and your family might go hungry and destitute. That's why they were so poor. So what if identifying with Christ, think of today, maybe in the future, what if by identifying with Christ and coming to a church, somehow or another financially, the powers that be had a way to cut off your resources? Would you be faithful to Christ? What if, what if someday it's coming that for Christians, for faithful Christians, somehow or another, their income is limited or cut off if they continue to go to church and take Christian stands. I would fall back on that song that says, I've never seen God's children begging for bread. Amen. Amen. That would be my yeah. easy to say. I, that yeah. I, I guess the big question is, what is the church as a whole going to do with the members when that happens? Yeah. Because it could be one or two members that are being ostracized. Sure. Is the church going to be loyal to those members and stand by them and be able to take care of one? Or is the church going to ostracize them too? Because I see that could happen very well. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, at Smyrna, they were faithful regardless of this challenge. Will we be faithful if it were to happen to us? He also commends them for the way they have endured blasphemy. The word blasphemy here literally means slander. They were being slandered by a specific group in town, the Jews. You know, the Jews were a protected religion in the Roman Empire. The Jews were excused from having to go into the pagan temples and say, Jesus is Lord. They didn't have to. 
Uh, and just like we see in the book of Acts, or like we see at Thessalonica, sometimes the Jews made life miserable for the Christians. The Christians were not a protected religion. And so the Jews in Smyrna were apparently calling attention to the Christians there, and they were slandering the Christians. Let's not forget, folks, that they slandered Jesus at his trial. Jesus even warned his disciples, if they speak ill of me, then they will do the same with you because the servant is not greater than the master. Well, Christ is very blunt here. In verse 9, what's he called? What's he called the Jews there at Smyrna? A synagogue of Satan. Does it surprise you that the devil has his crowd? The devil has his crowd too, doesn't he? Well, at Smyrna, the Christians were slandered. We know in general in the first century, the Christians were often slandered and accused of being cannibals. Now, why were the early Christians accused of being cannibals? Because of the Lord's Supper. This is my body. Take eat. This is my blood. Drink. They were sometimes accused of being atheists. Christians accused of being atheists, yeah. But why were they accused of being atheists? They wouldn't serve all the Roman and Greek gods, exactly. And sometimes Christians were also accused of incest. Why would Christians be accused of incest? Calling one another brothers and sisters. You might even save your wife. She's my sister in Christ. What, are you married to your sister? You know, incest. They were, they were accused of these things, being atheists, being cannibals, being guilty of incest. Early Christians were slandered. They were lied about. Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever been slandered for your faith? They were at Smyrna. And again, they were faithful. And you know, the Bible says when we, when we are reviled, we are not to revile back. Again, Jesus commends them and says, I know your tribulation and poverty and the blasphemy you endure. And, and the sense of the Greek text here, the word that you, he knows by experience. And he does because he faced all of that and more. So Jesus says, I know, I know, I know what you're going through. You know, isn't it nice to know that nothing can snatch us out of his hands? Amen. He never promised us life would be easy, but he did promise us he'd be with us. And folks, do you realize that persecution in and of itself has never truly hurt the church. Just the in fact, places in the world that where Christians are persecuted, churches may be smaller, but they're stronger and more dedicated. People talk about how strong the underground church in, in China is. I'll just have to take their word for it, but they supposedly the Christians who are part of the underground church in China, very strong believers. <laughs> I told you a couple months ago that 
some Christians out of the eastern, the former Soviet Union bloc uh, countries. Some pastors and church leaders kind of bemoan the fact of where they are today. They, they think with, with the Iron Curtain having come down and more freedoms, their church members and churches have become softer. And have they, they're saying they're, they're becoming more like churches in the West, complacent and comfortable. And some of them even long for the day back when the Iron Curtain was strong and it would really cost somebody to go to church because they saw much more life and vibrancy back then than they're seeing now. Does anybody want persecution? No. But again, it, it's, it's never hurt the church. Uh, what type of hardship are you faced with today? How might God want to use that in your life to make you stronger? Well, the third thing I want you to see, the challenge. Look at the challenge, verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He admonished him, first of all, not to fear. He says, fear not. Isn't it nice to know that we can live our lives without fear? That's a common thing in the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Believers are told over and over again, do not fear. 365 times? Okay. One for each day of the year, right? I do not fear. Anything that happens to us is only by God's permission. Even in the book of Job, everything Satan did against Job, Satan could only do to Job what God allowed him to do. And God would put a boundary on Satan. You do this, but you can only go this so far with it. <clears throat> Some of the greatest Christians of all times have endured prison, for example. John Bunyan wrote his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, while he was in prison. Well, Jesus lets them know at Smyrna that they're about to face a test. And he indicates here that the time of suffering will only be for a season. You know, the Bible says he'll not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able without giving you a way of escape. God knows your limits. Somebody's well said, when the heat is turned up, we can be comforted knowing that God's hand is on the thermostat. He says it'll be 10 days. Now, some have seen the 10 periods of Roman persecution here against believers. Some have seen the last Roman persecution that lasted 10 years. Others have seen that God is since 10 is a number of completion in the Bible, that God is simply saying there will be a determined, limited, a, a complete amount of time of suffering. It'll, it'll be complete, but it'll be limited because it won't go on forever. It only will last this long and no longer. 
And notice the challenge he gives them to this, that they are to be faithful. Folks, as you read your New Testament, the one thing we're called on to be over and over and over again is faithful. Faithful. Faithfulness is what the Lord is looking for. There's a story of how the Pope and the Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas were going through a beautiful cathedral one day and the, and the Pope was showing Aquinas all of the beautiful possessions of the church. And he said, Thomas, no longer does the church have to say, silver and gold have I none. Thomas looked at him with a sad face and said, yes, Pope. But no longer can the church say, rise up and take up your mat and walk. How are you doing at your task? Are you faithful? Are we faithful despite prosperity? Prosperity and comfort and ease. Are we faithful despite that? Again, the challenge is to be faithful and trust God no matter the outcome. And then finally, there's the promise in verses 10 and 11. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So what's the first First element of the promise, the crown of life. Now, these cities back then, the Roman, Greco-Roman cities, they would have known all about the Olympic Games because even if the games didn't take place in their city, it would take place in a, probably a city near them like Ephesus or Corinth. And there would be a wreath that the winners would get, a temporary wreath that would perish because it was just made out of some type of, of greenery. But Christians are promised from the Lord the eternal crown. Uh, I will give you life as your victor's crown. A crown that won't fade. It won't wither. <clears throat> and, and then he's, he talks about the consummation of life. He says you'll be spared... The second death, you'll not be hurt at all by the second death. What's the second death? Spiritual death. Eternal separation from the Lord. If you've been born once physically, you're going to die twice, physically and spiritually. But as a Christian, you've been born twice. Born, born again. You've been born physically and also spiritually. If Jesus tarries, you'll still experience the first death, the physical death, but that won't hurt you. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You don't have to fear the second death, spiritual death, separation from the Lord. And, and he's telling them here that their faithfulness will show what? Genuineness of their salvation. A saving faith is also what? A persevering faith. Right? 
persevering. That's, that's one of the hallmarks of genuineness, that we persevere. We don't earn eternal life because we persevere. If we're genuinely saved and have the life of Christ in it, we'll persevere because we're saved. It's not that we're saved because we persevere. We persevere because we're saved. Their faithfulness will show the genuineness of their faith, and they won't have to worry about the second death. Yes, they may die. He's not, he's not promising them that none of them will ever suffer to the point of losing their lives. But they won't lose eternal life. Folks, do we ever think about that? Sometimes today, people will do anything and everything to spare their lives. Some people might even turn away from their faith in Christ. Maybe they weren't genuine to begin with. They turn away trying to spare their life. But a person who does, who does that because they don't know the Lord, guess what? They're going to die the worst kind of death one day. They're going to experience the second death. Separation from God. Well, notice the invitation he closes with. He does with each one of the letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. God desires to communicate to his people. Are his people listening? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are we listening? God's speaking, but are we listening? Well, let me give you some lessons. First of all, there is no situation or circumstance in the believer's life that God does not know about. There is no situation or circumstance in the believer's life that God does not know about. Secondly, God does not measure things the way man does. They were poor, but God said they were rich. You know what that reminds me of? Isaiah 55, where we're told that God's ways are higher than our ways. They saw themselves being poor. They were from a world standpoint of view. But God says, you're rich. A third lesson. Christians do not need to live in fear over bad things in the world. Fourth, Christ is calling on Christians to be faithful regardless of their circumstances. Fifth, bad things do not have the final say in a Christian's life. I 
I want to ask you tonight, are you listening? Are you persevering? He may not get you out of your test or trial, but he'll bring you through it. So it's very important that you keep your eyes on him. Do you need staying power? Ask him for it. Don't imagine if you're going through difficulties in life, then that must mean that something's wrong with your faith. Doesn't mean that at all. Folks, if going through difficulties meant that there was something wrong with your faith, then Daniel would have been, his faith would have been in trouble. Paul's faith would have been suspect. Even Jesus' faith would have been trouble. Right? In trouble. If trouble is a sign that something's wrong with your faith, then all of the great saints of the Bible or something must have been wrong with their faith. Something must have been wrong with Jesus' faith. If trials and tests and hardships are a sign of trouble. Don't think that difficulties in life are a sign that something is wrong with your faith. Some people think, you know, what, what's wrong with me? If I were a better Christian, I, I wouldn't be going through this. God wouldn't have me going through this. There must be something wrong with me. No, you may be going through that because you're right with the Lord. Ask God to teach you and strengthen you through your hardship. Suffering. Faithfulness. Even in suffering. 